0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to week two of our sermon series that we're calling Ascension. My name is Charlie, and I pastor our Amarillo campus, but I'm here with you today, and I'm so glad that you've decided to be a part of our online campus. So again, thank you for being here. Let's just jump right into our our topic this morning. Again, we are going to be exploring the idea of Ascension over these next three weeks, this three-week series. So last week, we, we talked about ascension and the significance of Jesus not only ascending into heaven, but being seated at the right hand of God the Father. We talked about that him being seated there symbolized authority. It, it symbolized power. It, it symbolized the right to rule. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 describe the type of authority that, that Christ had been given when he ascended into heaven. Let me read that for you. This is, again, Ephesians 1, Verses 20 through 23. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things, all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the application that we drew from last week's sermon was that Christ is ruling and reigning, not in the future, but right now. Christ is ruling and reigning from the throne room of God right now. Christ, that means that Christ is not waiting on you and me to get to heaven, what he's actually doing is from the throne room of heaven, he's inviting you and me to help answer the prayer that he taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Christ is inviting you and me to participate in answering that prayer to help usher heaven into or onto earth what that means what we talked about last week what that means is that heaven should not be viewed as a place that we escape to that someday we're going to get to go to heaven we're going to get to escape this earth and get to heaven no we should think of heaven as a kingdom that's ushered in it's not a place we escape to it's a kingdom that we usher in so that's a little bit of a review from last week. But now that you're caught up, because it's summertime right now, I thought it'd be really fun for us today to have a little pop quiz to get our sermon started for this morning and for this week's topic. Now, maybe, maybe you're already frustrated and you're tempted to turn off the video. Please don't do that. If it makes you feel any better, you can call it a trivia question instead of a pop quiz. So here's the question. What Old Testament verse is either directly quoted or alluded to in the new testament more than any other stop googling don't google it just see if you can figure this out what old testament scripture is quoted or alluded to in the new testament more than any other any guesses if you got a guess maybe put it in the comments Okay, I can tell you're struggling a little bit, so let me give you some help. Thankfully, Professor Steve Siemens, who wrote the book, The Unseen Real, that this series is built upon, he helped you out and he gave some multiple choice options for you today. So, letter A, was the scripture Psalms 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want." Or maybe it's B, Leviticus 11.45, you shall be holy for I am holy. Or C, Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for iniquities. Or D. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your might. So again, what do you think? Put it in the comments. Do you think it's A, B, C, or D? What's your guesses? Now, I'm sure y'all really thought through that and you put some some great thought into it and you have some great answers, some great ideas about why your answer is the right one, but unfortunately, I can speak confidently and tell you that every one of you are wrong <laughs> because the, the correct answer was E, none of the above. Now again, maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're about to turn the video off. Please don't do that. I have to admit that that is how that question was written in our book, The Unseen Real. So Seminary professors are tricky. Sorry, that's just how it is. But the actual answer is Psalm 110.1. Let me read that for you. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the scripture, that's the Old Testament scripture that is quoted more often in the New Testament or alluded to more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament text. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I don't know about you, but that surprised me. It surprised me when to, to realize that that was the verse, that's the scripture that's quoted more often or alluded to more often in the New Testament. I think if that's the case, we have to answer the question, what is it? What is it about that particular verse that caused the writers of the New Testament to keep coming back to it over and over and over again? Well, first and foremost, I think the reason they continually cited Psalms 110.1 was because it reinforced the, the idea that Jesus is Lord. And we talked about that last week, that confession that, that Jesus is Lord not only communicated that God had resurrected Christ from the dead, but that he had elevated him to a place of authority. He had sat him at his right hand and he was ruling and reigning as king of the heavenly kingdom right now. So it reinforced that idea that Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Peter reference this truth about the the ascension and the significance of that prophecy of Psalms 110.1. He actually referenced that in his sermon to the people at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, saying this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, the New Testament church believed and they invite you and they invite me to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, that Christ is alive, that Christ is the king of the heavenly kingdom that eventually will be established on earth as it is in heaven. But the New Testament church would also encourage us to take comfort in Psalms one ten one, just as they did. In the early years of the church's existence, it experienced intense persecution. There is a reason why this persecuted church continued to go back to and continue to lean on the verse found in Psalms one ten one again and again. You see, this verse declares that the enemies of God will be made footstools. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the the enemies of God will be made footstools? Well, I I hope you're encouraged by the fact that I went back and checked. I went back and checked the Hebrew. The Old Testament is written primarily in the language of Hebrew. So I went back and checked, and the word that we translate as enemy in English is the word enemy in Hebrew. It's the same word. It's a clear and almost direct translation, enemy for enemy. So what Psalms 110, 110 1 is prophesying is that anything and anyone that operated as an adversary of the kingdom of God would ultimately be brought under the power and the authority of King Jesus. This meant that the church could have hope that the kingdom of God, which would eventually be established on earth as it is in heaven, will be ruled by God's holy love. The church could, could have hope that God would exercise both his pure love and his pure justice as king, as king of the heavenly kingdom that will be established on the earth. It also meant that the church could have hope that while evil might have a temporary win now, would ultimately be judged in eternity and would not go unpunished. The church could be encouraged that the acts of faithfulness that they committed now, even though they might be unseen now, would not go unrewarded. I love how Psalms 30 verse 5 wraps all of that together in really a a concise statement saying that weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. This church that is persecuted, that's under pressure, that's under hardship, could have hope in the fact that God's justice would be exercised on those perpetrating evil but also that their faithfulness, that their commitment despite persecution would be rewarded in eternity. See, the ascension was the first step in the fulfillment of that prophecy that was found in Psalms 110.1, that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But the ascension also reveals another powerful truth. Now, this powerful truth is powerful, but if we're not careful, if we don't look for it, we might miss it. So I want to I point it out for us this morning. In John 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's actually alluding to his, his future ascension when he says this, "'Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. To me, that's a shocking statement. How could Jesus, Savior of the world, say to his disciples and really say, Uh, to the future church, that it is better for him to go away. How could it be better for Jesus to go away? Well, to understand how Jesus could say that and how that could be true, we have to take a look and we have to acknowledge the shocking reality of the incarnation. The shocking reality that Jesus was both 100% God, but also 100% 100% man. We, we see a description of what that means in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, where it says, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. What this means is that in an extreme expression of humility, Jesus The God-man submitted himself and limited himself to the limitations of both space and time. This means that just like every other human, he he could only be present in one place at one time. Just like any other human, he would get hungry. Just like any other human, his body would get tired. Jesus humbled himself and allowed himself to be limited by space and time. And it is this limiting factor that, that Jesus is trying to bring his disciples' attention to, that if he goes away, that limitation would go away as well. Because if he goes away, then that would in, that would allow the, the advocate or the Holy Spirit to not only descend upon the earth, but live within the, the hearts and the lives of those who make up the church, God's children. You see, The the truth that I want you to see is that the ascension magnifies the ministry of Christ. The ascension magnifies, it expanded the ministry of Christ. When Jesus ascended into heaven, his ministry would no longer be limited by him being in one place at one time, but it would be extended through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the lives of the followers of the kingdom of God. The truth of the ascension is what enabled Jesus to say the shocking words that he said in John fourteen twelve. Listen to these words. Again, this is Jesus speaking. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and in fact will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Let me ask you a really pointed question. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus just said there in verse 12? That those who believe in me will also do the works that I do and in fact will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father? Do you believe that? Because Jesus believed it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. Jesus believes that because he's going to the Father, you and me will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do greater things than he did while he walked this earth. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus is not trying to give us some kind of self-help pep talk. That's not his goal. He's not trying to convince us to depend on ourselves more. He's he's very clear. He says, the one who believes in me will. Not, Not if you really believe in yourself, if you really trust in yourself, if you really depend on yourself. No, 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 no. Those who believe in Jesus, those who believe in me will do what he did and do greater things than he did. Those who believe in the name of Jesus will first and foremost do the same work that Jesus did. So what, what was that work? What was the work that Jesus did? Well, thankfully he tells us very clearly in, in Luke nineteen ten. this is what Jesus said. For the son of man came to seek out and to save the lost. What's the work that Jesus did? What was his primary work right there? To seek out and to save the lost. Jesus' primary concern when he was walking this earth was the one. Jesus' primary concern was to find and save those who were lost, those who were far from the kingdom, those who were unaware of the depth of God's love for them. Jesus was seeking out the one. Jesus did not come I hope this doesn't discourage you, but Jesus did not come to make the life of the 99 more comfortable. Jesus did not come to make the life of the 99 more easy. He came to seek out and to save the lost. And as he's preparing to ascend, he says that those who believe in him will also make this their life priority. They'll do the work that he did. They'll seek and save the lost just as Jesus sought out and attempted to save the lost. This means that if we, the church, are going to follow the example of Jesus, we should be more concerned with the one than we are with ourselves. Let me say that again. If we're going to follow the example of Jesus, we're going to live and do the work that he did. We're going to be more concerned with the one than we are with ourselves. We should be willing to sacrifice our own preferences if it means following in the footsteps of Jesus and finding and saving that lost one. The ascension magnifies the ministry of Christ. Again, John fourteen twelve. Jesus goes on to say that those who believe in him, those who do the work that he did will in fact do greater things Because he has gone to the Father. It's interesting that that word that we have translated to greater could also be translated as larger or expanded. I believe a part of what Jesus is celebrating here is that as a result of the ascension, his ministry will no longer again be limited to space and time. I think that Jesus was looking at what the church would do after he ascended and he saw and believed that the church would be empowered to expand beyond Jerusalem, to, to reach the ends of the earth. Jesus saw the church going beyond the borders of where he was at and where he lived. He believed that the church would expand out and would establish kingdom principles and kingdom values wherever it went. Jesus believed that you and me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would introduce the lost to God's love. We would offer the lost God's healing power. We would create a community where the lost would feel found. Now, Jesus goes on there in John 14 and verses 13 and 14 says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask for anything, I will do it. Well, church, let me ask you a question. How often? How often are we asking for an opportunity to meet and connect with the lost in Jesus' name? How often are we pleading with God to help us save those who don't know him and don't know his love in Jesus' name? How often have we called out to God and begged him to empower us to provide healing, to give hope, or to forgive in Jesus' name? How often have we prayed that our church would be empowered to establish the principles of the kingdom of God here on earth in our community in Jesus' name? Now, allow me to remind you that the church is not primarily an organization. It's not primarily made up of, of leaders and, and professional Christians. The church is primarily a community. And a community is made up of individuals who each contribute to the whole. What this means is that you can't depend on your pastor to seek and to save the lost. That means you can't just hope that your Sunday school teacher is, is praying for these things to happen in Jesus' name. If Jesus said, if you believe. Jesus said, if I believe, then I'll do the work that he did. If you believe, then you will do the work that Jesus did. The ascension magnifies the ministry of Christ. How will you magnify his ministry? What are you willing to ask for in Jesus' name? What I'm going to encourage you to do as we wrap up today, I'm going I'm to pray for us and you're going to stop the video, but I, I'm going to encourage you to take a moment before you move on with your day to, to sit down and Maybe even write down what you're going to pray for in Jesus' name. How are you going to follow in Jesus' footsteps to seek and to save the lost? What what greater thing could Christ do through you if you invited him to? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to live lives in light of the ascension. Help us to establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to follow in your footsteps to seek and to save the lost. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today.